Investors Chronicle. Hello and a very warm welcome back to the IC Interviews podcast. I'm Dave Baxter. I'm the funds editor on the Investors Chronicle and my guest today needs very little introduction. We're very pleased to have Nick Train with us, a storied and very experienced UK equity manager. Nick works on the Finsbury Growth and Income Trust, on the Lindsell Train UK Equity Fund and is also co-manager on the firm's global equity portfolio. Over many decades, Nick has built a reputation for his focus on quality companies, backing a very limited number of businesses with strong brands and loyal customers across the world. He tends to hold these for extremely long periods. In terms of performance, the funds have struggled versus their benchmarks in the last few years, but do have some very laudable returns over longer periods, including the last decade. So, Nick, hello. Thank you very much for, for joining us. How are you doing? I've never been better. Thank you very much indeed. And, yeah, looking forward to the, to the discussion. So let's just jump into what we're actually talking about pre-recording, which is something you've been commenting on this year, uh, something many people, many of our readers have been thinking about this year, which is the state of the UK equity market. Obviously, been quite a I suppose, a grim few years for UK equities. People have been lamenting that UK equities are undervalued and they haven't really had that uh, perhaps decisive return to form just uh, yet. And, and what interested me was earlier this year, you sympathised to an extent with the pension funds who've been divesting from the UK in recent decades. Uh, and you kind of back the view that perhaps UK companies have ended up sacrificing some growth in the name of satisfying dividend investors. With, with that in mind, I mean, could you make a case for a reverse of the UK's fortunes? And I suppose after this, it'd be interesting to get your take on, you know, if anything, what do we need to kind of turn things around for the UK equity market? Yeah, there's a long list of usual suspects for what might be the causes of this malaise for the for, for, for the UK equity market and you know I, I'm persuaded that it's complex and that there's more than one factor here. I think there's no doubt that the one you highlighted and that I, I also discussed earlier this year has played a part. The investors in the UK, including me, probably for about a quarter of a century from the mid-1980s through to, I don't know, let's, let's say the first financial crisis, investors in UK equities for a multi-decade period got rewarded for buying value, in inverted commas, mm. particularly with value, in inverted commas, being partially defined by high starting dividend yield. You know, that culture of the UK equity income fund, and I managed one of those earlier in my career for, for many, many years. Um, but that income-seeking, dividend yield-sensitive investment approach was also quite commonplace um, a, a across institutional 
uh, houses as well. Schroeder's had a reputation in that area, Phillips and Drew and others, M&G. I, I do think that it's definitely a sustainable proposition that in hindsight, looking back, that was a bit of a fool's paradise. This idea that you could have both a high starting dividend yield, growing dividends and growth, although miraculously it seemed to work for a period of time, it's kind of definitively stopped working. And I think that the fact that it stopped working has changed investor expectations and you know, that looking across the Atlantic and seeing the incredible returns and sustainable returns, apparently, that have been earned by businesses that don't pay dividends at all or pay dividends much later in their life cycle, I think that that is beginning to percolate through into both UK investor behaviour and maybe into the UK corporate sector's behaviour as well. This idea that you pay out half of your earnings or more than half of your earnings just by default almost to keep your investors happy with a dividend flow. I think it's important that companies really question their dividend payout ratios and truly seek to determine what the best use of their precious retained earnings are. And, you know, I'd like to think that for a lot of the UK stock market, and I'd absolutely like to think for some of the companies we've chosen to invest in, the potential value that could be created by reinvesting in organic growth opportunities for the companies ought to be much greater than paying out excessive dividends. I don't don't know if I've spoken too much on that, but, but kind of you prompted me to, and I think it is... I think it is a factor in um, the historic poorer performance of the of the of the UK stock market. I don't see any particular Deus ex machina, if that's the phrase I'm searching for, that um, overnight or over quarter or over a twelve month period makes the UK equity stock market not just undervalued, but gives it the potential to make significant capital returns for investors. I mean, maybe the only circumstance I can see that is the deeply disappointing circumstance of a global crisis when the oil price doubles again. Mm. I can see how the UK can perform if commodity prices go up at a cripplingly high rate, but I don't think that's good news really for, for, for anybody. I will just put out there you know, a phenomenon, again, that I'm particularly conscious of relative to the companies that we're invested in as maybe an indication about how valuations could improve or at least corporate behavior in the UK might improve in a way to enhance returns. And and that is seeing the proportion of global and particularly US institutional investors becoming a bigger and bigger proportion of the shareholding registers of the companies that, that, that we're invested in. Um, so I, you know, I think you know, it's very notable um, 
what is it, six weeks ago now, that Diageo announced that it was choosing to change its currency of accounting record from sterling, you know, it's a UK domicile, UK listed company, from sterling to dollars. And we, like a lot of other observers, asked the company, well, why have you done that? Are you indicating that you might be considering leaving the UK stock market, you know, as, as obviously some business have done. Well, Diageo assured us that that wasn't the case. And I think on balance, it probably is right that, that, that it's not the case. But they did remark that 45% of their share register is now uh, dollar US investors. And actually, the US is far and away their biggest single geography. So, you know, you can see within Diageo's share register this growing influence of non-UK investors. Of course, when a UK pension fund sells, somebody's got to be on the other side of the transaction buying. And we see in, you know, I think the world-class companies that I hope we're investing in, a world-class business like Diageo, that more and more US investors are becoming more and more important on that share register, including, I'm going to say again, because I have said this before, but including Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's vehicle, has relatively recently become a top 10 shareholder in Diageo. And that's great from my point of view, because, you know, he's a <laughs> endorsement of the investment. But also, I think that Buffett and, you know, the big growth investors who are at the top of Relex's share register or Experian share register, they're going to help those companies make the sort of asset allocation calls, capital allocation calls that their US counterparts do that have helped the US businesses perform so much better than the UK ones. So does that make sense? Just mm -hmm. as a, you know, it's, it's a marginal, yeah. relatively slow change, but maybe if the shareholders change, and they're no longer income-maximizing investors, they're more growth-oriented investors, maybe that's the way that we see better performance out of, uh, out of UK companies. Would you, would you also see, I mean, it's just me speculating, but say we get more kind of global investors, more US investors, would you perhaps expect to see more of a potentially kind of activist elements? Because I guess, I guess the corporate culture can be slightly more sharp elbows and perhaps if people recognize that um you know the company could be run with more of a focus on that kind of organic growth and so on um would you expect to see that well you know i think it's very interesting um the the decision that unilever made to welcome nelson peltz onto the board of unilever when his vehicle, Tryan, took a 1.5% a stake in, in Unilever, that was apparently enough to get a seat on the Unilever board. Um, I'm putting the rights and wrongs of that to one side. You know, I think what's, what's most notable about the, the recent Unilever quarterly updates is how aggressively Unilever has been cutting the number of its SKUs, stock keeping units, i.e. individual items sitting on shelves 
around the world. And, and I think that it's right to say that over the last 18 months, which is somewhat coincidence with Pelts being on the board, Unilever's cut a quarter, 25% of its SKUs. And that, you know, that's quite a big proportion to cut. It, it, th there's a short-term cost to the company in a sense they're losing those revenue lines. But what it does mean is that Unilever is more and more focused, presumably, on its biggest selling and most profitable brands, which you'd hope in the long term would enhance returns on, on capital for the business. Now, that looks very, very similar to what Nelson Pelt persuaded Procter & Gamble to do when he took the seat on Procter & Gamble's board five or six years ago. And by the way, that resulted in a re-rating, an upward re-rating for Procter & Gamble's share. So I, I, don't, I think I'm not going to say I know the answer to your question. Is there going to be a general increase in activism as a result of changes in share registers? But I can certainly point to at least one, and after all, Unilever is one of the UK's five top five companies, so a major company, it looks as though that company has responded to thoughtful pressure from what you might call an activist shareholder. Certainly Tryon has a, has a record of being so. Mm -hmm. So maybe, what am I saying? Maybe I'm saying that there is a latency, a potential for, for maybe some value to be released in 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 that way. It's yeah. interesting what you say about sharp elbows and an M and A. Um, I don't I don't know. I mean, the, I mean the the UK has always had a reputation, maybe maybe an unhelpful one. I don't know for being quite a buccaneering, um, you know, island economy punching above its weight around the world, being prepared to make bold mergers and acquisitions. I, I I agree that seems to have quietened down a bit since, dare I say it, 2016. Um, I, you know, that's obviously another at least sentiment factor on the UK and maybe on UK corporate confidence. I, I, I don't know. It's it's I just know it's deeply frustrating as someone who's been trying to earn money <laughs> or returns on savings for, for our clients in the UK. I just know how frustrating it's been mm. and uh, i suppose on that note of the the kind of the buccaneering spirits and so on um there are you know i suppose many parallel discussions going on about kind of how the uk equity market could become more dynamic um you know could we for example reform company regulations could something be done to encourage more in innovative businesses to list and i suppose on the other side you have ideas of kind of um, encouraging pension funds to invest more in the UK and even private investors, you know, there's, there's been kind of noises of ISA reforms and that kind of thing. Um, is there anything there or any other kind of potential factors that stand out to you that could perhaps, you know, help uh, return the UK to form? I'm not clever enough and don't have the, the technical knowledge to to make any recommendations here. I'm, I I, um, I I honestly hope that it happens because I think it could tend to lead to better living standards for the whole country if if there are more successful quoted businesses. But I'm not smart enough to to table the answers. But what, what one thing I would like to 
to share for patient investors in high quality companies in the UK. I mean, let, let, let me add that caveat. One of my, I never know where to call them younger colleagues. I mean, they're not necessarily that young anymore, but one of my colleagues who's younger than me <laughs> and probably smarter than me, you know, has said to me, he said, Nick, I don't, I don't really understand why you and these other poor benighted UK equity managers, I don't know why you're complaining so much about being able to invest in good businesses at a discount. Surely that's what you ought to want as an investor. I mean, the lower the price, the higher the return is that you can earn on the business that you're investing in. And, you know, I think it's reassuring and at some point is going to have been extraordinarily value creating how many UK companies, particularly the ones that we're invested in, are just metronomically retiring equity at the moment. I mean, it's completely the rational thing to do. If you've got a world-class business that's being undervalued relative to its peers, as long as you've invested enough to maintain your organic growth rate, then to retire as much equity at these, at these prices as you can, that one day is going to be hugely accretive. So from that perspective, I'm not at all critical of the, of the companies that we're in. I mean, you know, Diageo, Unilever, you know, we've not talked about Relex or Experian or London Stock Exchange Group yet, but they're all notable for conducting big and persistent buybacks. And it's the rational thing to do during a phase when UK equities are, are out of favour. I mean, does that look obviously more attractive than them doing some form of kind of internal uh, investment? Because I suppose that seems to be the, the big debate, you know, where are you getting more bang for your buck? I, I completely agree. And I, I think to the extent that I, my colleagues and our industry, to the extent that we can add much value to you know, the business affairs of these companies. Um, I mean, I certainly don't think I'm qualified to tell the vast majority of the companies we're invested in how they can run their business better on a day-to-day view. I mean, really, I, I think it's, it's, it's um, there's a lot of vanity, I think, in our industry of fund managers who've never done an honest day's work in their lives telling people how to run businesses better. But, but I think that we can engage the companies in a discussion about capital allocation. And I do think it's beholden on us. And, and I promise you that we do it all the time with all the companies to challenge them again and again about the dividend payout ratio and the quantum of share buybacks relative to the organic growth opportunities. Because what NASDAQ has demonstrated is that fully investing in the organic growth opportunities creates a lot more value than even the buyback and definitely the dividends would be my view. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Let's turn then to, I suppose, some of the kind of uh, companies you mentioned, some of the holdings. One kind of theme we were discussing briefly before kind of recording is kind of artificial intelligence and that boom and how investors can tap into it. 
Looking at your holdings, I suppose, kind of relics and London Stock Exchange names that have been kind of touted as potential AI winners. Um, but I, I just want to get your take, you know, to what extent do you think it's going to be a game changer actually in terms of kind of revenues, earnings, um, and, and how much do you worry about the kind of so-called AI hype kind of feeding into into price and sentiment? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I've heard a lot of people ask this question and almost all of them, and I'm going to do it as well, preface any comments by saying, don't ask me, I'm really not an expert on artificial generative intelligence. And I, and I, I know that I'm, I'm not. Um, but what, what, I, what I am persuaded of is that what's potentially valuable with this enhanced digital technology, it's not revolutionary, it's an enhancement of search algorithms of, of large language models which have been around for 20 years or more. But it, it, it's, a, it's a serious enhancement, but it's not, it's not a revolutionary break. What is clear, and it's clear in the most important way imaginable from my perspective, which is it's driven share prices up over years, is that companies that possess large amounts of proprietary data that's unavailable to others, those businesses are in a position to utilize these AI tools to create additional value for their customers. I don't think you need to have a, a particularly hyperbolic view to see that Relex has already been using primitive and now more advanced AI tools for at least a decade. And you can see Relex's client retention rates and growth rates increasing as they introduce more of these sophisticated tools and analytical tools to their, to their products. I look at Finsbury Growth and Income Trust portfolio, and I look at companies that we might want to add to Finsbury's Growth and Income Trust portfolio. And one of the things I'm looking for is companies that do possess exactly what I've just said. In other words, proprietary data that they have access to that their peers or competitors don't. And actually, Finsbury shareholders have been rewarded for a couple of decades by owning businesses that, that are data rich. They've been rewarded to a degree in 2023 as well. And yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful, you know, as the saying goes, that this is just the beginning and that there's a lot more to, to come. What, what I feel is, for me, tantalizing is that, you know, I, I do think that there are some genuinely world-class data owners, creators, curators listed on the London stock market, like Relex, like London Stock Exchange Group, like Experian, um, all of which are major holdings for us, by the way, not coincidentally, all of which, you know, I think really have a credible proposition to put to their clients and ultimately to their owners that they can utilize artificial intelligence in a way that's likely to produce better outcomes and better value for their customers. So I, you know, I look at those UK listed companies and I think, well, 
how many global asset allocators who might ask themselves, do I want some exposure to AI winners? How many of them would think to look at the UK? I'm going to guess not many. Um, mm. And it, it just makes me wonder, as a long-suffering UK investor who's been trying to look on the bright side regularly for the last decade and has been wrong pretty much for the whole 10 years about saying that there's unrecognized value in the... But I do wonder whether those sorts of... You know, Experian is the biggest biggest credit bureau on in the world. The London Stock Exchange Group is the number one provider of real-time financial data in the world. Relex clearly is dominant in global science, law, and insurance. I mean, you know, this is not me imagining this. These are globally significant data businesses that are listed on the London stock market. And, well, let's put it this way. There's not much hype surrounding their share prices or, or valuations. And I, I sincerely hope that's an opportunity. Mm. And perhaps they need to brand themselves more as uh, kind of AI plays or, or that kind of thing. Is that one way? I'm ha- unhappy for the conservatism. Um, you know, Grant Cassin said to us, he's the CEO of Experian, he said, you know, if I tried to tell you what our year four revenues were likely to be from AI, don't believe me because I wouldn't even necessarily believe the numbers myself. You know, it's still too nascent. On the other hand, he said, clearly, as the biggest owner or collator of consumer and business credit data on the planet, we ought to have a major opportunity here to apply these tools. And by the way, Experian, you know, has won industry awards for its for its existing AI products. So it's a latency there that you would expect for a globally significant company with that quantum of data. But I, I can understand why they're not trying to get the thing hyped up at this juncture. If you're enjoying podcasts from the Investors Chronicle, do listen to our other productions, including the newly released episode of Lee and the IC, where Alex Newman and famed ISA millionaire Lord John Lee discuss the art of selling and more. Turning to, I suppose, some, some other names in the portfolio, um, one that many of our readers, I suppose, are interested in, maybe both as customers and investors, is Hargreaves Lansdowne, which has you know, had, a, had a difficult few years and I suppose has some interesting new developments recently. So the FCA is kind of looking to, I suppose, apply more scrutiny on the kind of money that investment platforms such as Hargreaves, such as AJ Bell, make from client cash. And, you know, cash has been something that has kind of helped Hargreaves in recent times. Hargreaves also, I suppose, seems to operate in an increasingly competitive platform space and, you know, needs to make or believes it needs to make plenty of sort of tech investment in order to kind of revamp its offering. What kind of edge do you think the stock still has? Kind of what stands out to you when you kind of run the rule over it? Perhaps tentatively, but I would actually include Hargreaves Lansdowne within that cohort of data owning or creating businesses that have a significant opportunity to enhance developments in artificial intelligence tools to lead to better outcomes for the, for their customers. So in direct answer to your question, I would say Hargreaves has more customers and more interactions, digital interactions with its customers than anybody else 
in its market in the UK. It is still by some margin the leading direct-to-consumer platform. I can't see into the future, but it, it seems highly plausible that out of necessity or government encouragement, people need to save more and will save more. And having an investment in the biggest D2C platform in the UK, that just seems strategically like an interesting an interesting asset for us to for us to own. I don't say that this is the determining factor for the future success or failure of, of this company as a business or as an investment, but you know, as an observation, it's surely not a coincidence. In fact, we know it's not a coincidence that the new chief executive who began in August of 2023, Dan Ollie. One of his previous jobs was being chief technology officer at Elsevier, which is Relex's scientific publishing division. He knows more than I do about how to deploy technology at scale, and in particular, how to use data in a way that enhances the value of the data for underlying customers. And that is absolutely our understanding of his strategy for Hargreaves. And it'll be fascinating to see to see how it plays out. I think that all of these businesses, AJ Bell, Hargreaves, Lansdowne, St. James's Place, you name them, they all need to achieve and maintain a reputation for offering good value. That doesn't necessarily mean the cheapest, but they need to be perceived to offer good value. And, you know, again, absolutely to the extent that we can as investors in the company, that's what we encourage Hargreaves to to do. Um, And in some cases that will involve perhaps reducing fees. In In other cases, it might involve adding additional layers of functionality or data or information to customers. It doesn't matter. What matters is the perception of the value for money that they they offer. Mm. That must be um, quite hard as an investor to judge. And I, I suppose it's something you've always been in one way or another involved in, given your kind of focus on brands. But how do you how do you try and kind of gauge whether a company is still you know, seen as good value or is still a particularly strong brand? Because that's, I suppose, an especially intangible um, thing to measure. It, it, it is, and I, I, I can't pretend that we have a quantitative or statistical-based rule that infallibly tells us. But, you know, market share gains or losses are... <laughs> that 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 they're worth noting, you know, perhaps slightly away from the wealth sector, you know, in in the in the consumer branded space, you know, you want you want to see the ability of businesses to maintain the real price or value of a product without without losing volume, you know, and that that's. That's probably as good a definition of what constitutes a consumer brand as anything. You know, when your input costs go up, can you increase the price of your product? And will consumers accept that price increase or do they look elsewhere? Um, And, you know, that's, you know, that's currently 
a proposition that's being tested across brand owners right the way around the world. Mm. Some brands are, you know, impervious apparently to rising prices. Others, you know, quite quickly are demonstrating signs of commoditizing and, you know, that's a warning sign. Yeah, yeah. Uh, turning to kind of some of your, um, I suppose, consumer stocks, um, y- you have a decent level of focus on, I suppose, some of the more kind of premium names, um, one of which is um, Burberry. Um, there's there's some interesting discussion with Burberry kind of on the extent to which I suppose their fortunes now are riding on kind of their new sort of designer collections and, and so on. Um, and perhaps some people could worry about the risk of a brand attempting to kind of reinvent itself and, and so on. How much is that kind of a concern to you? And what are your thoughts on, on the stock in general? Burberry is an example of a company that, in our opinion, has been doing the correct thing for a number of years, but has, in terms of its share price, received scant recognition and you know i don't know we'll we'll have to wait and see whether there is ultimately a reward for the tough decisions that burgrave's board has made over the last four or five years but but you know there's been a very meaningful sacrifice of lower margin mastige products that burgrave have just walked away from in order to elevate the status of the Burberry brand and get more of the revenues of the business more aligned to true luxury and being retailed either in its own stores or online through its own website. Those decisions have definitely retarded the growth rate of the business, but we think have also definitely increase the warranted value of the remaining business does that make sense because what's left is much much closer to true to true luxury you know i think that it's not ms and it's not viton and it never can be and it never will be and i can quite understand why investors who have got a global brief or even a pan-european brief would own viton or ms rather than Burberry. But actually, I'm mandated to run a UK equity strategy, and I look at Burberry, and it is the only thing that exists in the UK that's even remotely like a luxury branded goods company. I, I, mean, I think on some measures, it, it, it is the 10th biggest luxury brand on the planet, well, you know, which is not a trivial thing. Burberry's iconic trench coat that is the top luxury outerwear brand in the world. And whether that is growing quickly or not growing, that's still a very, very valuable position to have. You know, I, I, I see the share price trade currently because maybe there isn't enough earnings momentum. I see the share price trade as a proxy for people's belief about Chinese consumption. You know, if people think China is booming, they'll buy Burberry. If they think China's shrinking, they'll sell Burberry. I don't mind what other people do with the share price. But from my perspective, I look at Burberry and say, is it a good thing that this British company 
derives well over 40% from its revenues from Asian customers, particularly Chinese Asian customers, who have a decayed, if not century-long, love of Burberry Gabardine outerwear. And to me, that's, that's a fantastic global position that this company has. And if it can find a way to diversify the product offering a bit, get more leather goods, get more shoes, if it can increase the densities of the sales in its stores around the world, then, and I don't know for sure whether it can, but I think Daniel Lee's done a, a good job in bringing some attention back to the brand, then all I can say, like so many other UK companies, is Burberry's not being valued as though it was going to be successful. You know, on a, a pound of revenues compared to its market capitalization, you pay a fraction for Burberry or EV to sales from what you'd have to pay, admittedly, for a luxury brand that has been more successful. So I, I don't know. Again, I don't know if I've used this word already in this conversation. There's a definite latency within Burberry if they get the stated strategy right. And again, you know, Burberry, I think it's true to say it's the it's it's the only quoted mono brand in the world, mono luxury, i.e. there's just one brand, it's a single brand that doesn't have a family family control. You know? Um the, there's I, I, I'm not saying Burberry's going to be taken over. I don't want it to be taken over, but it's it's an interesting strategic asset to own. You know, one of the world's 10 biggest luxury brands with this incredible mind share in Asia on a third of the valuation by some metrics of its peers. And by the way, there's no blocking stake in Burberry. It's kind of interesting. And also, by the way, Burberry is buying back its shares. It's doubled the size of its buyback this year compared to last year. And that is totally rational. The company's got no debt. It generates a lot of cash. It's totally rational. It should be retiring its stock at this at this valuation. Mm, mm. And just turning to one other name that's benefited from its focus on premiumization and so on, you have mentioned Diageo, has made some good progress on some fronts, um, but I suppose it is worth raising the fact that people are worried about the kind of US growth prospects. Um, and there are some quite differing views on whether that's subdued demand or whether there are other factors at, at play. What's your kind of take on, on the situation there? You know, I, I must be careful not to get messianic about Diageo or any of these businesses. You know, one can be one can be wrong. Um, but I, I just can't help feeling relative to what we're all trying to achieve with these savings that have been entrusted to us, with this capital that's been entrusted to us as investment managers or advisors, in my opinion, we're, we're trying to find assets that have a high likelihood of protecting the real value of our client savings over long periods of time. Um, and to me, okay, I've got a UK orientation. And probably there's dozens of other businesses that people without the same orientation that I have might table here. But I can think of few businesses listed on the London Stock Exchange 
that have a suite or collection of brands more likely to have protected owners against inflation and grown in real terms over the next decade or couple of decades. I mean, you know, just just half of Diageo's business is Johnny Walker, Guinness, and these incredible tequila brands. Those are the leading brands in their categories with decades of structural growth ahead of them and pricing power. And by the way, the other half of Diageo isn't bad at all. So to the extent I can, and, and perhaps you won't allow me, but to the extent I can, I would rebuff questions about, is Diageo having a tough year in the States this year and next year? I, I'd rebuff it and say, no, think, think about this apocryphal hypothetical question. If you could only invest in one company and you weren't ever allowed to sell it, you know, what would it be? <laughs> what characteristics would it have? And to me, Diageo would have a lot of the characteristics that you'd look for, for security of your capital against inflation, against, you know, you know, Guinness is a quarter of a millennium old. And this year is going to be the best year in the company's history. Johnny Walker's 130 years old. This year is going to be the best year in Johnny Walker's history. And that it's only just getting started. So I said I wouldn't get messianic. I don't even know if that's a word that I have. But, but that's the way I look at it. That's the way I look at it. That the tactical issues that people agonize about, if you agonize about the tactical issues, you, you end up not owning as much of Diageo as you ought to. Mm. It's the biggest alcoholic beverage business in the world. It's evidently, self-evidently, the best positioned of them all. I mean, others, you know, Brown Foreman's a good business. Penarica's a good business. You know, but Diageo's a very, very good business. Mm. Of course, you're known as a kind of buy and hold investor. And I suppose there's there's clearly been a merit to kind of overlooking or looking past the noise and kind of, seeing the bigger picture but what does actually prompt you to sell in the rare cases where you do you know i hope it's not a council of despair i I don't mean it to be you know it's i I know how trite this sounds and and you know obviously you have to cherry pick and i have to cherry pick within my portfolio it's just that when you look at very long-term share price charts of what seem by common consent to be good companies, if you own them for long periods of time, you, you, you tend to do really well. <laughs> I mean, you know, Diageo is up sixfold since the start of this century. I mean, it, you, you know, sometimes it outperforms, sometimes it underperforms, but but sweating about it and you run the risk of not... Ca- that That's the effect. That's the effect that, that, that we're looking to to capture and i have to say it does make me and as a as a business it does make me cautious and skeptical about selling out of things and finding something better to use the cliche you know everybody thinks the grass is greener but you've really really got to be certain about that proposition to justify selling something particularly when what you sell might not have done very well for a period of time and you're buying something that has, I mean I'm just saying it's that it's much harder than than people expect I will sell when I've satisfied myself often to the point of complete exhaustion that 
a business can't do what we'd hoped it was going to be able to do. Maybe it's invidious for me to, to, to go into names, but that's what would make us sell. More what we're buying at the moment. I mean, I've just started a new holding in the UK, which I'm not going to tell you what it is because it, it's not a big enough position yet. But I mean, I've just started a holding. Actually, it could have been any one of a, of a number of, for me, two or three other ideas. I mean, I definitely think that this malaise in the UK stock market, for me, it, it's, throwing, it's throwing up ideas. I've just initiated in a, a FTSE 100 company, actually with the biggest data set in its industry. I, I, it, I think it's a fascinating opportunity. And I know that there are others that are interesting to us and to others. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't create competition in the portfolio, I suppose, versus the existing names. I guess that tension is always valuable. There was a long period, like about five years between 2012 and 2017. I think it was a a five-year period when I didn't buy a single new idea. It actually coincided with one of the strongest periods of performance that that we've delivered, by the way. You can't legislate that. I don't say that's the reason that the performance was strong, but it's interesting. You don't necessarily... You have to be having new ideas to have very, very strong performance. I, I, I mean, by my standards, it's almost hyperactivity. But, you know, I've, I've bought three new holdings since 2020. And as I said, I mean, there's at least another three that are very interesting. If anything tells me that the market's cheap, it's the fact that even I'm finding things that are getting harder to resist. Yeah, interesting. Well, I'm afraid that is all we have time for but a very interesting discussion and i just like to say thanks to nick for joining us and thank you for listening finally we would love to hear from you the listeners uh, if you have any thoughts comments or would like to suggest potential guests for the it interviews please email me at david.baxter at ft.com Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.